0: This is Speaking of the Economy, a podcast hosted by the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. In each episode, we'll hear firsthand from the Richmond Fed's economists and other experts about the issues they're exploring, from access to credit, to workforce development, to regional differences in economic outcomes. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and do not represent the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond or the Federal Reserve System.
1: Hi, I'm Jesse Romero, Director of Research Publications at the Richmond Fed. Thanks for listening to Speaking of the Economy. You can find more episodes on our website, richmondfed.org, or subscribe via Apple Podcasts. If you like what you hear, please leave a review and tell your friends. I'm talking today with Nicholas Engbaum, an Assistant Professor of Economics at New York University, and Mark Bills, a professor of economics at the University of Rochester. Nicholas and Mark are here in Richmond for our second Core Week, which brings together economists from a range of disciplines for a week of collaboration and ideas exchange. I'm excited to talk with them today about the papers they're presenting this week, both of which address the important role that human capital plays in both individual and aggregate outcomes. But first, let's start with some basics. So, Nicholas, what do economists mean when they talk about human capital?
2: It's a broad concept for sure, but uh, broadly, I'd say it's a it's a measure of a worker's knowledge or or skills that you can use in some productive way to produce you know, goods or, or services or maybe even ideas.
3: I'm trying to say close to Becker's definition, but it's basically anything where you give up something today for a gain tomorrow. Anything that gives you a market or welfare benefit is a form of human capital. the The difference. It's kind of embodied in the person. Mm -hmm. The example I would give is I learned how to make a very good cake Mm -hmm. from just practice. That's my human capital. If I came up with an idea for a better recipe and I wrote it down, that's not human capital. That's kind of not embedded in me, and it would be passed on, even though they kind of lead to the same quality of cake.
1: I like that. It's the first time I've ever heard cake used as a metaphor in economics, so I like (laughs) that. So let's start with your research um, specifically. So with your co-authors... FarRS Kaimak and Kaiji Wu, you're studying labor substitutability. So what does that mean?
3: We're looking at substitutability, particularly with respect to schooling. Over time, there's been a tremendous increase in schooling. People see this in the U.S, but it's at least as striking in other countries. We're focused on a lot of countries, mm-hmm. uh, you know upwards you know, 60 to 100 countries over the last 60 years. And what you'd see is that the amount of years of schooling in the population is you know tripled on in the typical country in the u s we've seen this you know many many people go to college. It wasn't that long ago that you know it was more more rare
1: mm-hmm.
3: uh, so we're looking at sort of the substitutability across these schooling groups and, and in particular, if you get this increasing in schooling over time, what does that do to the return to that schooling? does it tend to drive it down uh, you know because I get more and more of a certain uh, type of education group. And, and so they're like, you know, crowding each other out. And so does that lower the return on schooling? That, that's what we mean by substitutability.
1: Okay. Speaking as a non-economist, it seems fairly obvious that a worker with a high school diploma wouldn't be a good substitute for somebody with a master's degree. That seems pretty intuitive. But so why is it something that it's important to study more precisely and understand in more detail?
3: I'm going to go into a little bit of a difference where what what Uh, economists mean by perfect substitutes okay so perfect substitutes doesn't mean that somebody with a college degree and somebody you know with much much less schooling uh, even if they're perfect substitutes it doesn't mean they're equal substitutes so it doesn't mean that that there's no value to the schooling or that the person with less years of schooling would be same incomparable it means that even though there's some gain to having a more productive worker if you suddenly shift the economy to having a whole lot of people of of the one type with lots of schooling, it doesn't necessarily drive down the relative ability to trade one for the other. So parallel would be, you know, we're going to have an aging workforce. People are getting older and older and older, but maybe age has some benefits. And we see that, you know, wages are higher for older workers. Uh, So you wouldn't say necessarily the experienced worker is equal to a, a new person hiring. But if I hired two new people and they spent a lot of time sorting out, you know, Making more mistakes and how they should do it, they might be able to be a fairly good substitute for one more experienced worker. So the substitutability and being, you know, a, a perfect replacement, those are two separate things. But I'll, I'll give a couple of reasons why it's important. For instance, if we consider policies that subsidize schooling, and schooling is like one of the most subsidized things of all, uh, you know, actions. One of the arguments for subsidizing schooling is in terms of uh, inequality of earnings. As a practical matter, though, when when economists look at the effect on inequality of subsidizing schooling, very little of the impact comes from taking people who would have, say, finished in high school and then convincing them or encourage them to get more years of schooling. In some sense, they're going to get higher wages, but they're going to get wages later. There's still a trade-off for that person. Most of the action is more people get, say, go to college, the return on schooling falls, and that's what leads to the greater equality. That's the argument which is often made. I mean, otherwise, you look at a lot of the college subsidies and they're really upper middle class transfers to, mm-hmm. uh, to a large degree. Right? Well, yeah, that's So that's good. often like a, a justification. But if the schooling is relatively good substitutes, then there's more and more people going to schooling. And it won't really have such a big effect on the relative of wages of people with more or less schooling. Another example which comes up often when we talk about immigration, should we have more selective immigration, like in Canada, where you bring in more of a threshold in terms of skills and assets to come in? The argument as well this affects workers in the say the u s who would be you know less skilled if we bring in less skilled immigrants. That's all completely dictated by how strong the substitutability is. Our particular emphasis is on looking across countries mm-hmm. um but I think that's, I'll, I'll just leave it at that.
1: Okay, great, well that's a great segue to my next question, which is, um we won't get into the the technical details of your paper, but we will have a link on the show page for, for listeners who are interested in them. But as I understood it, the upshot is that you and your co-authors find a much higher degree of substitutability than has been found in previous research, and so then, how does that affect our understanding of, of what's driving these cross-country differences?
3: When we look at cross-countries, Per capita incomes are 30, 40 times high in richest countries as poorest countries. And the long question has been, could poor countries catch up by investing more? Uh, In particular, is there such a high return on schooling? So that's led to a a lot of work trying to say, how important are differences in human capital in rich and poor countries? Uh, If you do sort of a quick calculation and say, well, in rich countries, people have six or seven more years of schooling, What's the benefit when we look at the market in terms of what somebody who gets 12 years of schooling versus six years of schooling, it's sizable. Suppose it doubles your earnings. Doubles your earnings is a big number, but relative to a factor of 35, it's very small. So Mm -hmm. that leads to the conclusion that it must be other factors, uh, not schooling or school quality that matters. But key in that assumption is that it's just more years of schooling in rich countries. So what people have argued very soundly is that maybe the quality of schooling is much higher in in rich countries. So it's not so much the years of schooling, but the quality of the schooling. The problem with that argument is that the market returns don't look higher in rich countries than in poor countries. So to justify why the quality is so much higher, then I have to have that they're very poor substitutes. So schooling is much better in rich countries, but there's already so many schooling people that the return is low, so I don't realize how how much higher the quality is.
1: Okay. So what implications do you think your findings might have for policies to, say, address inequality, either across or within countries?
3: So I would just go back to what I was talking about before. Uh, If I think about subsidizing schooling, I think it suggests that there'll be some effect. We're not arguing that these schooling groups are perfect substitutes. Right. So I just put our numbers in, in context. So if you look at the U.S., uh, over the last forty, fifty years, a huge increase in schooling. If you use sort of numbers that people have often used in the literature, if there had been nothing else that happened and just had this big increase in schooling, then the return on going to college would have gone from being like forty or fifty percent to like minus twenty percent or minus thirty percent. So it's very extreme in, in that sense. Our numbers say, you know, if there hadn't been these other factors changing which drove up the demand for schooling, just the extra people going to college would have probably driven the return down from like 50% to 20% or 25 So it's it's not like we're saying they're perfect substitutes. Mm-hmm. But it, it does matter. It's very key for talking about any policy that affects schooling. And what does that imply for inequality? Because if I subsidize schooling and I drive down the return, I indirectly help the people with less schooling. That's directly related to this. So the, the higher the substitutability, the less effective would that policy be. And then again, if It's saying uh, I don't have to worry so much about if we get a a set of immigrants, say, who are less skilled. Mm -hmm. It's not going to move things so much.
1: Great. Thank you. So, Nicholas, um, the research that you're presenting this week also looks at cross-country differences, but you're looking at a a different driver, and that's job-to-job fluidity, or kind of how readily workers can move from job to job. So how does this fluidity kind of compare or vary across countries? Uh, kind of before this study, we didn't know
2: all that much about this particular form of mobility, Mm -hmm. job-to-job mobility, even though from the U.S. context, so in a cross-country sense, but in the U.S. context, we've kind of known from a long literature that this is a very important source of life cycle careers, kind of workers move over time to better jobs, and it's it's an important driver of wage gains for workers, etc. In my study, I collect data from a set of developed countries I find large differences across countries in the rates at which workers switch employer mm-hmm. from one to another. It turns out that these patterns are also correlated in the way you maybe would expect it based on the u s evidence we have so in a country where people do switch a lot uh employers, uh you also see steeper wage growth over the life cycle kind of consistent with the narrative we have from the u s
1: okay um sounds like the U.S. does tend to be more fluid. Yeah, so that's for sure. I mean, there is a
2: lot of dispersion across countries. There are other countries that are similarly fluid as the U.S., like Mm -hmm. the U.K., for instance, but also some countries in Europe. You know, you tend to think about Europe in general as a very non-fluid kind of area, uh, and the U.S. is a high-fluid area. That's actually not entirely true. There's a lot of dispersion within Europe, too, in terms of fluidity in the labor market policies that governments have implemented. So countries like Denmark, for instance, mm-hmm. has a fairly flexible system, and that shows up as, as a high rate of worker flows across employers.
1: Oh, okay. That's, yeah, I didn't realize that there were those differences mm-hmm. within Europe. We do to think of it all as kind of one. one
2: yeah, block, yeah. No, so. there is very much a distinction between, say, Southern European countries and then kind of some Central European countries that generally have a little bit higher fluidity uh, and, uh, and then the Anglo-Saxon uh, countries, the U.K. and the U.S., that have very high levels of fluidity.
1: So is the U.S. job market, is it more fluid than it used to be, right? I think you hear a lot of people saying like, no. oh, they're, you know, yeah. long gone are the days when you could work for the same company your whole career. But, you know, how accurate was that yeah. characterization and has it changed? No,
2: you know, that's a very interesting question. I think it's, uh, it's a debated question. If you ask a layman, they often tend to say what you said now, that fluidity is higher now, these lifetime jobs were more prevalent in the past. If you actually look at the data, a, there's more of a kind of nuanced story. Mm-hmm. So it is true, I think, uh, that if you look at the tenure distribution, the very right tail uh, has become a little bit less thick. It's and a little bit. So there is a sense in which these lifetime jobs have become less prevalent today uh, than in the past. So you know, I tend to think about that as you know, unionized manufacturing mm-hmm. jobs, maybe. But that's it's, there's very few workers that actually hold those type of jobs. Even 30 years ago, that was not that common. Okay. Again, for the average worker, it actually looks like measures of job-to-job mobility have gone down in the U.S. People switch employers less now than 30 years ago.
1: Wow, that is definitely not what I would have expected, or certainly, yeah, it's not the narrative you hear. So you one of the things you find is that greater fluidity is associated with greater wage increases. So what's the mechanism there?
2: Right, so the idea is that you know, by switching employer, that's a way for you to effectively kind of boost the return on your skills. You move to an employer that maybe values your skills more. Mm-hmm. So in some sense, by switching more, you drive up the price and your skills over time in the labor market. Now, if you endogenize skill accumulation on the job, then you could see how that expected a faster return of growth in the return to your skills could also incentivize people to accumulate more skills in the first place. So in my model, uh, higher fluidity is associated with both then a steeper growth in the price of skills, but also the underlying quantity of skills.
1: So the idea would be, if I think I have a good chance of going and getting a higher-paying job somewhere else, well, I'm going to go ahead and invest in more skills right now in the hopes of then landing that job. Yeah, exactly, because
2: if you're kind of in a job that doesn't really value your skills, there's not much point in accumulating skills. But if you think that later on you can at least find some job where you can kind of better use your skills, you might end up responding and accumulating more skills, exactly.
1: So are there things that policymakers could or should do to enhance labor market fluidity?
2: Even more than kind of targeting fluidity, I would argue that policymakers would maybe try to want to subsidize on-the-job training in some ways. Mark mentioned there's a lot of subsidies to formal education mm-hmm. prior to entry to the labor market, but we have a lot of evidence now that there's also an important accumulation of skills on the job. Uh, and according to my analysis, that might be Underprovided in the market.
1: So I think both your papers are very relevant in the current environment, right? We're hearing a lot about employers lowering their skill requirements so that they can draw from a larger pool of workers. Um, we actually have an article coming out about that in Econ Focus. We'll have a link on the show page. And then you know the quits rate is at record highs, um, which implies that a lot of workers are changing jobs. So do you think that your your research can help us think about public investment in education, the value of employer-based training, kind of in the current environment, and and Mark, I'll
3: ask you that question first. What I would speak to is to the extent you know people are substitutable, uh, it suggests that this can work, it can be a successful strategy. I, I, I think it would be a very big improvement in the U.S. labor market if there was a sort of less emphasis of using schooling as a screen, because uh, there's many jobs people go to college and they work jobs that aren't really related mm-hmm. to what they learned in college. And so some of that is is some skills they learn and and social skills in college. But I think some of it is a signaling that the market's using, I think, a more fluid labor market where, A, firms will take a chance and, and be able to hire people and let them sort of prove themselves. And then, B, be able to fire them easily if they don't pan out is just a much better system. I hope that's one of the benefits that comes out of Covid is that we get to a higher fluidity, but also more experimentation in the in the labor market. There's going to be a lot of positions where they're going to say, "Yeah, let's let's just try to you know invest more in the interviewing process and find people who don't necessarily have the years of experience or they don't necessarily have the years of schooling, but they could very well be extremely successful." And, and people are kind of reaching and trying to push themselves up and be as productive as possible given their certified characteristics in terms of
2: schooling, et cetera. totally agree with Mark. My work emphasizes a lot of scope for learning on the job. And if we can get some people that maybe have a little bit lower qualifications on paper into these jobs, there's still a tremendous scope for learning stuff on the job. And, and maybe you just have to get through that gateway and then you can kind of accumulate a lot of the skills you need for that particular job.
1: That's a very encouraging way to think about things. Um finally just last question. How are you enjoying Core Week?
2: I think it's been fantastic. I mean having the same yeah. room with Markville. So <laughs> So No, it's it's been fantastic. Uh, it's, it's super cool. No, it's fabulous. The bank has a just
3: an array of, you know, fabulous economists and all the people coming in and then it's it's set up beautifully with the activities, you know, enough uh presentations but enough time to interact outside of the presentations. so it reminds me back when uh years ago there was the summer institute the mbr would have and it was like that there were a few papers you'd go to but you had time to walk around and go get ice cream and interact <laughs> with people and there's no there hasn't been anything quite like that where you know where the days got lots of things going on but not so packed that you can't interact with people so it's it's been it's been great.
1: Well, I'll take the comparison to is Very high praise indeed. You know, but it's it's really our pleasure to have you here. So thank you so much for coming. And thank you so much yes. for, for talking with
0: us. I really enjoyed it. Speaking of the Economy is produced by the Research Department at the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. You can subscribe to the podcast on the Apple Podcasts app or download past episodes from our website at richmondfed.org speaking of the economy. Want to know more about the issues that the Richmond Fed has been exploring? check out our Regional Focus, a series of curated webpages that showcase economic research and data, reports and essays, and community engagement endeavors relevant to 5th District communities. Just look for the links on the homepage at richmondfed.org. The intro music for this podcast was composed by Ernest Barbaric, and the sound effect used in the intro was produced by Keith Holzman. The outro music was by Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening.